It's so great to be back with you guys. We were here two years ago on a Sunday morning and then last year for your Valentine's banquet. And so what a blast to get to come back again this year. Has anybody, has anybody moved in the last year from one place to another? Yeah, a couple, few. Anybody think they're going to move this year at some point? Yeah, well, see, if, if that's the case, then, then here's what you need to be thinking about. You need to be thinking about, well, boxes and tape guns and furniture pads, uh, utility knives, dollies, tie-downs. If you've moved any time recently, you know all about these moving supplies. Did you know that something like 40 million Americans move every single year from one place to another place? And there are lots of reasons why people do that. Um, Sometimes it's by choice. Sometimes they want to, but other times it's not by choice. Sometimes they don't want to at all. You know, it could be that they have to relocate because of a death or a divorce, the loss of a job, or even like an unanticipated transfer. But regardless of the reasons, whether it's positive or negative, wanted or unwanted, it results in lots and lots of relocation stress. Well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. You see, here's the crazy thing. You might not have ever thought about it this way, but the Bible is filled with stories about people who relocated, people who moved from one place to another. And just like I was describing, many of those people wanted to move, but many of them didn't. You know, for some of them, it was by choice. For others of them, it was not by choice. They, too, experienced all kinds of relocation stress. But the interesting thing to me is that You know, we could think of it this way. We could think of it as unwanted change. You know, relocation becomes a metaphor for change. Sometimes we experience change and it's wanted. Sometimes we experience change and it's unwanted, right? Sometimes we choose to change. Other times we encounter, you know, change in our lives that we never would have chosen had it been left up to us. And so we want to discover what the characters of the Bible discovered, And that is that there is transformation in relocation. And so we're going to look at Daniel and his relocation from Judah to Babylon. It was not by choice. It was definitely um, not Daniel's plan. And so we're going to learn everything we can um, from Daniel's experience. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into the text. Father, thank you for bringing us together on this special Sunday, family service, uh, communion service. What an awesome thing it is to worship you, to pray to turn our attention now to your word, and we pray that your spirit would speak through your word into our hearts and our lives, Lord, for all of us who are experiencing transition and change or who are going to experience it in the near future. May this give us sort of a roadmap, sort of a way to think about it and embrace it in a different way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so first, we're gonna see Daniel at the food court. Look with me in Daniel 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. 
And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, this is six centuries before Christ. So whereas we see ourselves as being, you know, 2,000 years after the cross, this is like 600 years before the cross. And we read about this attack. Well, there were actually three of these attacks. There were three different times that Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem and took captives. Each time he took captives. This attack that we read about here in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it is the first of those three attacks. And so among those taken into captivity, we have King Jehoiakim. Now, he wouldn't be gone long. Nebuchadnezzar would take Jehoiakim and drop him right back into his place uh, as a puppet king. But Jehoiakim wasn't the only one that was taken. There were others. We're going to talk about those. You guys remember when you were in school and you'd get like an annual or a yearbook at the end of the school year? You know, you'd have everybody's, you know, school picture. You'd have maybe pictures of entire classes. There'd be all kinds of photographs taken of events throughout the year. And sometimes there would be um, like where you would vote most likely to succeed, most likely to do this, most likely to do that. You guys remember that? I actually still have like all of my junior high, I guess they call it middle school now. So all my middle school and high school annuals. I mean, they're in a storage unit in Austin, Texas. I haven't seen them in years, but I'm pretty sure they're still there. And when you do look at them, it's kind of fun to look back at stuff like, like those things that you voted on. I have a pastor friend who was, you know, as a kid, was voted most likely to go to hell. If his feelings were hurt, he got over it soon because he saw that in the same yearbook, his brother was voted most likely to marry outside the species. So, I mean, take your pick, right? And which is better or which is worse, I don't know. But Nebuchadnezzar was trying to find the teenagers voted most likely to succeed. And so, you know, as described in verses 3 and 4, he was looking for young men who were physically and mentally fit. Now, as an aside... You notice in the text that reference to the master of eunuchs? Let's talk about that for just a minute. If you're like me, you have people in your life, um, they might be family members, they might be friends, they might be coworkers or neighbors, but people who don't take the Bible seriously. You take the Bible seriously, most likely. That's why you're here on a Sunday morning um, listening to me talk about the Bible when you could be doing any one of a hundred other things. But some people don't take the Bible seriously, and one of the reasons why if you were to ask them, one of the things they might say is that, well, the Bible is filled with contradictions or it's filled with historical inaccuracies or scientific inaccuracies. Have you heard things like that from your friends, from members of your family? The next time somebody tells you that the Bible is filled with contradictions, hand them a Bible and ask them to show you one. I promise you that 99 times in 100, they have no idea where to find one. They're just repeating something they've heard, something they've read, something their college professor said. But every now and again, somebody will take you to a problem passage. There are some. But I promise you that if and when that happens, if you'll just do a little bit of homework, you'll be able to go back to them with a really thoughtful, well-reasoned response and answer to their question. 
But again, you know, some people say, well, my problem with the Bible is that it's filled with historical inaccuracies. And for many years, those kind of people pointed to this reference to a master of eunuchs. They said that there was no evidence that there had ever been any such position in ancient Babylon. That is, until archaeologists found a little something that we call the Babylonian Chronicle. There on a clay tablet, there's a reference to the Rabsaris, which means, you guessed it, master eunuch. So if you were to visit uh, the British Museum, you could actually, you know, look at this clay tablet with your own eyes. Such a cool thing. Well, back to our text, to the flow of the story. Nebuchadnezzar had in mind for these guys a three-year conditioning program. He was going to tackle three different parts of their lives. The first of those was their education. Look with me at verse 4 and see there the reference to language and literature. I've always admired people who can speak more than one language. Um, You know, I think that being multilingual, bilingual, multilingual is a very cool thing. My wife is bilingual. Miranda was born to American missionaries who were uh, church planting in Naples, Italy. So she spent the first eight years of her life in Italy. She learned to speak Italian before she ever spoke English. Um, One time she recorded an album in Italian and did a tour over there. Pretty cool, right? Um, You know, me, not so much. I mean, I'm still trying to master the English language, much less move on to something else. It, It reminds me of when my eldest daughter, Lauren, was in high school and taking high school Spanish. And you know how it is if you're a parent at the beginning of the year, there's always a day that as a parent, you get to go and sort of follow your students' schedule and meet their teachers. And so I was in her Spanish classroom. The teacher gave a very short you know, talk about his plans for the semester, the syllabus, and so forth. Strangely enough, he was obsessed with all things Chewbacca. I mean, not just Star Wars in general, but Chewbacca in particular. He had this bizarre Chewbacca obsession. That was totally irrelevant, but I just thought I would throw that out there because it still strikes me to this day, like, what was up with that, you know? Why Chewy? I mean, so, but he, he, after his short presentation, he actually opened it up to questions, and it was crickets. It was so awkward, you know, when you're in a group. It's like a large group of people. It'd be like if I stopped to take questions right now, and like nobody is asking the question, and you could hear a pin drop, and, and then I awkwardly try to prompt you, and still nothing, and I awkwardly try once again, and still nothing. It was that kind of situation. I should have helped him out. I should have thrown him a bone. I mean, I could have asked him anything just to relieve the tension. And actually, I had a question that I didn't ask. I don't know why I didn't ask him. I wanted to ask him why, after two years of high school Spanish, all I can remember is tu estas loco. I mean, I got a B. You'd think I would remember more than that. But at least that one thing does come in handy every now and then. The Babylonians, well, they were really, really educated. I mean, we know now that they were masters at astronomy and mathematics, and we're not anti-education. I think education is awesome. But Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just trying to educate them. His intention was to move them away from the Bible. For these you know, Hebrew men who had been taken into captivity, the Bible was everything. Those stories found in in the law, in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, those are the stories that, that when they read them, it told them who they were. It told them who God was. It told them what it meant to be in a covenant relationship with God. It talked about, um, you know, how they were to live their lives. And so, you know, it was so important for them to be completely immersed in that. 
And Nebuchadnezzar wanted to move them away from that. But it wasn't just their education, it was also their culture. Notice in verse 5 the references to delicacies and wine. You see it there? To these guys, I mean, think about it. It, it, Let's just say, anybody here who's ever had teenage boys in the house, you know what it was like trying to keep them fed? Were they not like always in the refrigerator? So here's these teenage boys, and they've been brought from a city that was under siege. You know, one of the things that typically happens when your city is under siege is that, that there's a halt to the food supply. So these guys were hungry. They were starving. And to find themselves in Babylon... It must have seemed like a food court. Don't you love a food court? I mean, the beauty of a food court is all the options, you know? Because after church, like if you're in a group of four or five people and you're trying to figure out where to go to lunch, let's get American. No, I'm tired of American. How about Italian? No, that sounds bad. What about Mexican? Well, I just had Mexican last night. It's so hard to settle on something, right? But you go to a food court, there's something for everybody. Then the problem becomes, I can't decide. I want some of that and some of that and some of that. So to these guys, it must have seemed like they were in a food court there in Babylon. I can only imagine how conflicted they must have felt. We're going to talk more about it in a moment, but the Old Testament had dietary laws, things to eat, things not to eat, and and so they had to feel conflicted. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? What should we do? So again, we know that the Babylonians were super cultured. Archaeologists have found extraordinary objects of art and culture, and culture's good. We're not anti-culture. It's not a bad thing to be cultured or exposed to culture, but Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just trying to expose them to culture. He was trying to move them away from their lifestyle. So again, going back to those dietary laws, think about it. If you had the Old Testament you know, law, if you had those books of Moses that, that told you what to eat and what not to eat, then, then what would that mean for you in practical experience? What that would mean for you is that every single time you had a meal, you would be reminded by what was on your plate and by what was not on your plate and by how the things on your plate had been prepared that you belong to God. Think of it. Every breakfast, every lunch, every dinner, looking at what's in front of you, I am God's. I belong to him. I'm his. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want them to be reminded of that. He wanted to move them away from that. Their education, their culture. Well, the third thing was their religion. Notice in verse 6 that they all got new names. Have you ever wished you could have a new name? Have you ever met someone or heard of someone that you thought could really use a new name? I mean, sometimes you watch TV and you see what celebrities name their kids and you're like, what were they thinking, you know? Or you meet somebody and maybe it's not even the name taken by itself, but it's the pairing of that first name and that last name. Like, were your parents intoxicated? I mean, something went horribly wrong when your name was chosen, you know, when that form was filled out. Um, I've always kind of had issues with my name. My last name is Rigg, R-I-G-G, and... um, you know, when I was a kid, you know how kids are. They'll, they'll take names and twist them around and rhyme them, and rig rhymes with, well, pig. So I went from being rig to being rig pig. And because people can't help but add an S to my name, like, I can't help it, put an S. So pig quickly became pigs. So I was rig, rig pigs and then just pigs. So I could be walking down the hall, people see me be like, hey, pigs, what's up, man? What's up, pigs? 
I mean, I hated that. That that was terrible. I wasn't happy about that. Now, I was going to kind of turn that around. Back in the 80s when I was playing in a band in Hollywood and, you know, thinking that, you know, maybe that was going to be like a career for me. And then what would it be like if I had a solo career? And I already had like the names of my solo albums planned out. You know, my debut solo album would be Rigamarole. That'd be cool, (laughs) right? And then I'd follow that up with Rigatoni. And then when I was ready to hang it up, one last album, one last tour, Rigor Mortis would be the finishing touch. I thought that'd be awesome. But the truth is, when I was in Hollywood, I, I dropped the name Rig. I went by Alan Lee. That was like my stage name. And, and that was my first name and part of my middle name. You see, my middle name is Leroy. Now, if there are any Leroys here, you have the coolest name in the world. But I hated it. I don't know why, but I hated that name Leroy. Growing up, I just didn't feel like a Leroy. Now, the thing is, I was named for my dad. I'm a junior. So he's Alan Leroy Riggs Sr. I'm Alan Leroy Riggs Jr. I didn't want anyone to know my middle name was Leroy. I would not tell my friends. And if they found out, man, I would never hear the end of it. They'd drop pigs in a hot second to start calling me Leroy because they knew, they knew it drove me crazy. So I felt this way like my whole life. Now, some years ago, my last opportunity to spend time with my grandmother was the last time I saw her before she went to be with the Lord. She came to visit me in Austin, Texas, which is where I lived at the time and pastored Calvary Chapel, Austin. And so when I was with her, I asked her, like, you know, okay, since I'm named for my dad, like, why did you name, why did you make my dad's middle name Leroy? And she told me that Leroy was the name of her favorite uncle. She had this uncle whose name was Leroy Lemon. How cool is that? I mean, not just Leroy. Leroy Lemon. If you're going to be a Leroy, you definitely want to pair it with Lemon, of course. And he was her favorite uncle. And so she named my dad that middle name to honor this amazing man. Well, that alone started to soften me. I thought, you know, maybe I've kind of been a jerk about not liking the name Leroy. And then after she had passed, I was visiting my dad, and my dad had this book that some, some member of, of our family, some you know, distant member of our extended family, I don't even remember for sure who it is, but had, had put a book together. They'd done some genealogical work and had a bunch of old family photos, and I saw a photo that included Leroy. There were five or six men in this picture. They were all my relatives, and they had formed a band. They're all standing in a picture holding musical instruments and stuff. And now I'm like, man, how rock star is Leroy? Man, Leroy is like the coolest name ever. So it's amazing what a name can mean to us and how we understand it and what we think about it can can just change everything, right? Well, so the Babylonians, just as they were educated, just as they were cultured, they were also super religious. We know that they were into polytheism. We know that they were really into astrology. And so you've heard other Bible studies that have developed this. Um, If you want to learn more, it's just so easy to do now. Go home, pull up Daniel 1 on Blue Letter Bible, click on the words. You can see the meanings of the names. But I'm just going to, in real general terms, explain that, you know, all of these guys' original names speak about God, the one true and living God. And all of their new names speak of false gods that were worshipped in Babylon, So see, this is why I say Nebuchadnezzar was trying to move them away from their religion. Just like what I said about the food. Think about this. 
If all of their names, their given names, spoke of the one true and living God, then every day, every single time someone called them by name, they were reminded about God. And they were reminded that they belonged to him and that they had this unique relationship with him and that he had this call on their lives. Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't want them thinking about that. He didn't want them being reminded about that. So the new names are intended to move them away from that. Now, we have an enemy. Our enemy is not Nebuchadnezzar. We only wish that our enemy were Nebuchadnezzar because our enemy is so much worse. Call him Satan, call him the devil, call him the evil one. He's got lots of names in the Bible. But the evil one's conditioning program, oh man, I wish it was a three-year program. It's not. It's a lifetime program. Like he never takes a day off. Every single day, Satan is working, chipping away at me, chipping away at you, trying to move us away from all of these very same things. He is wanting to move us away from the Bible, away from a better life, away from God. So before we move on to our next point, let me ask you, at this time in your life, facing whatever change or transition or even relocation that you may be facing, are you moving toward the Bible or away from it? Are you moving toward a better life or away from it? Are you moving toward God or are you moving away from him? Daniel at the food court. Now we're gonna see Daniel in a food fight. Look with me beginning in verse eight. It says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. As you see fit, so deal with your servants. So we consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. Now, have you guys ever been in a food fight? I don't mean like, you know, at the kitchen table in your, in your family of origin where you throw a green bean at your brother or your sister. I mean like where you're in, in, a, in a group of strangers and everybody starts throwing food. I've been in one of those. And it really was like something right out of a movie. It was insane. I was in middle school. It was lunchtime, so I'm in the cafeteria and, uh, you know, we're all seated at tables. I'm seated at a table with my friends. And, and then all of a sudden, somebody yells those words, food fight. And the next thing you know, like, food is flying everywhere. Visibility instantly drops to zero. I mean, you want to talk about the food pyramid? We were building it right in the middle of the cafeteria. It was unreal. I'll never forget what happened next in this food fight. We had this assistant principal who we called Link. Because to us, he looked like he could be the missing link. He had this really pronounced forehead, like, like this unbelievable ledge, this shelf. Like, like the dude would never need a hat or a visor. It came like original equipment. I mean, he was just set. He was just set for life. So, so he's there in the cafeteria. And, of course, he's you know, rushing toward it, hoping to stop it. And I just remember seeing this chocolate milkshake. You know, the cup is just turning over as it 
flies through the air. It's, it's spinning so tightly that the ice cream is tucked neatly inside the cup until it hits him in the head. And then here's this chocolate milkshake just running right off the end of his pale forehead, just dripping off the end. It was awesome. An academic highlight. I remember very little from that year of my life. I remember this. Stands out to me. So here's the crazy thing. I mean, when you think about this food court that we're describing, and, and Daniel is surrounded by people who are downing the delicacies and washing it down with wine, and all of a sudden Daniel yells, food fight. Why? Why did Daniel want to fight about food? Well, notice in verse 8, twice it talks about being defiled. So it's possible that some of the food they were being served was not kosher. Let's revisit the idea about those Old Testament dietary laws. So they had lists of things to eat and lists of things not to eat. And it is possible, even likely, that, that some of the things they were being served were on the not-to-eat list. So that alone would create a problem, right? But then there's an additional problem. It's likely that some of the food, certainly the meat, had been dedicated to idols, to false gods. We read about that in the New Testament, but don't always realize that that was a practice that goes back to Old Testament times. Now, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, we get the New Testament take on that. Paul says it's all about conscience. Ultimately, he says that because the false god is false, it doesn't really exist. Therefore, the meat dedicated to this God that doesn't exist is dedicated to nothing. So it's not defiled. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no reason why you can't eat it. But again, he says it's all about conscience, and he describes two kinds of consciences. Let's linger here for just a moment, because I think this is important, and then we'll move on. Paul describes a strong conscience and a weak conscience. It would be a mistake to think that one was a, you know, a compliment and the other one was an insult. They're, they're descriptive in this sense that someone with a strong conscience has a conscience that's, that's less sensitive. It takes way more. Think of it like a smoke detector. It takes way more to set it off. And then someone with a weak conscience just has a more sensitive conscience. Again, think about a smoke detector that is set off way more easily. You know, that threshold is much lower before, before it goes off, before it's tripped. So we all know that in the Bible there's black and white. Right? I mean, if you're very familiar with the Bible, you know that there are things the Bible says to do. There are things the Bible says not to do. But you also know, if you've been living a life of faith for long, that there are those things that we call gray areas. Things that, that the Bible just doesn't seem to explicitly address. You know, you can't find a chapter and a verse that says, you know, you must do this or you must not do that with regard to some particular thing that you might encounter. And so in those areas, the strong conscience, that is the less sensitive conscience, the one that, you know, it takes way more to set it off, well, it looks at gray and sees white. And the weak conscience, that is the more sensitive conscience, the one that it takes far less to set it off, it looks at gray and it sees black. So Paul, you know, says in Romans 14, verse 23, that he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So this is where we have to be sensitive to our conscience. 
If, if our conscience doesn't have a problem with it, then it's okay for us. If our conscience has a problem with it, then it's not okay for us. But when Paul says that we need to be sensitive to our conscience, he does not mean just our own. He does also mean that of others. So let's talk very briefly. Again, I know we need to move on, but I want to linger just long enough to get something here that I think is important. Let's talk about what it does and doesn't mean to stumble someone, like in a technical sense. If you do something and I don't like it, you didn't stumble me. If you do something that that I don't have the freedom to do and it annoys me or it irritates me, you did not stumble me. But if you do something that, that I don't have the freedom to do, but because you do it, I'm conflicted and I revisit it and I wrestle with it and I do it, And immediately I'm stricken. Immediately I'm convicted. Immediately I realize that I have violated my conscience. Then you've stumbled me. So too often today when we talk about not stumbling, it's the first part. It's just a way of controlling people. It's just a way of telling everybody else that they should follow our list. So we need to get away from that. But on the other hand, a lot of times we're careless. We're reckless. We're not sensitive to where other people are at. And and we may actually put somebody in a bad position where they violate their conscience and where it hurts their walk with the Lord or, or even uh, you know, sends them into a, a season in their life that's destructive that they thought they were clear of once and for all. So it, it's a very important thing, but as it relates to the first part where we call stumbling just doing stuff that we don't agree with, that's bad because then you can have a, an entire church culture that's hijacked by a small intolerant minority. That's not healthy. And that's not at all what Paul was getting at. So just a little bit of stuff to think about there. Coming back to Daniel and his friends and the food court and the situation they were in. This all-you-can-eat buffet, it must have seemed like a relatively small thing, don't you think? After all, life as we know it is over. We've been taken against our will to another country. Um, We don't know what's going to happen to us here. This is our chance to maybe have some kind of a future um, you know, I mean, we just, we're in Babylon. We just need to do as the Babylonians do. What happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. You know, everybody cuts corners to get ahead. Those are the kinds of things that they might have thought, that they might have told themselves. Why not cheat a little to get ahead? We see it all the time in our world, don't we? We see it in the sports world all the time, all the doping, the steroids, the stimulants, HGH. Did you know that pastors have performance-enhancing drugs, PEDs? We get them at Starbucks, drive through on our way to church. I had a quad espresso this morning. I find that, that espresso and the Holy Spirit are like this unbeatable combination. But, but seriously, in our world, cutting, corner cutting seems to be the norm, and I'll bet it felt that way in their world too. But, but notice in verse 8 that Daniel and his friends, well, Daniel, he purposed in his heart. He had a purposeful heart. To put it another way, he had a heartfelt purpose. What is your purpose in life? I want to talk about doing and being because, see, if your purpose is to do, if what you're all about is doing, like if I'm, if I'm all about achieving, if I'm all about accomplishing, if I'm all about accumulating, then I'm definitely going to be tempted to cut corners. But let's come over here. If my purpose is to be, if I'm focused on becoming the man, the woman, as the case may be, the person that God has called me to be, if I'm focused on being first, 
well, then I'm not going to be tempted to cut corners or, or certainly not to the same degree. I'm certainly not going to be as likely to give in to that temptation. And you know what I've noticed? I've noticed that people who are all about doing, people of faith who are all about doing, tell themselves that they're going to get around to being. As soon as I accomplish this, I'm going to focus on my personal growth. As soon as I achieve this, I'm going to focus on my spirituality. As soon as I accumulate this, I'm going to start putting God first in my life. And they never do. Focus on doing, never get around to being. But in my life experience and in what I've observed, people who put being first always get around to doing. When they focus on becoming the person that God's called them to be, then what seems to naturally follow right along behind that is accomplishing what God's called them to accomplish, achieving what he's called them to achieve and so forth. And so I think that there's a lesson there for us to be learned. Well, Daniel and his friends, they didn't just refuse to eat. They could have, right? They could have just been like this. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. Think about a kid that's like, there's no way they're letting mom get that spoon in their mouth. Mm -mm, mm -mm. They're in the high chair. Mm -mm, mm -mm. No, it's not going to happen. That could have been Daniel's response, but it wasn't. Not only that, not only did he not just refuse to eat, but he didn't give up when the chief eunuch said he couldn't help him. You know, Daniel, Daniel tried to deal with the situation. He got shut down. He could have just given up, but he didn't. He tried again. He tried another angle. There's this saying that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. You've heard that, right? And it's so true. And it's true in every arena of our lives. I mean, it's even true at church. It's even true at church. I've often said that anyone can point out a problem. And lots of people do. Most people do. But fewer people will offer a solution. And fewer people still will actually volunteer to roll up their sleeves and do anything about it. If as a pastor, I mean, I led Calvary Austin for 18 years. And if I had a dollar... For every time someone approached me to tell me what was wrong, what wasn't right, why we didn't have this, why we didn't have that, had we thought about starting this, what if we did that? If I had a dollar for every one of those times, I'd never have to work another day in my life. But you know what? Of that, of that group of people, if this was a pie chart, be a real small sliver who actually had a very specific solution in mind. And of that sliver it'd be another really small sliver who were actually volunteering to do the, the thing that they had in mind to do. They had great ideas, all right? Great ideas as to what I should do, what my staff should do, you know, what our families should undertake. But they weren't ready to roll those sleeves up and bend those elbows, put some elbow grease into it at all. And so, you know, the funny thing is, as we think about it, do you want to excel do you want to set yourself apart in church? Do you want to set yourself apart at work? Do you want to set yourself apart at home? Be a problem solver, not just a problem spotter. Now, when you look at Daniel's diet, it appears to be a vegetarian diet. I love vegetables. The, the world has two kinds of people in it. It has vegetable lovers and vegetable haters. How many, how many vegetable lovers do we have? Yeah? How many vegetable haters do we have? I've got an uncle who's a vegetable hater. Um, he had a head injury some years ago, and as a result, he, he no longer can taste anything, and he still won't eat vegetables. My aunt's like, I mean, how much do you have to hate vegetables to refuse to eat them when you can't even taste them anymore? It doesn't make sense. I am a veggie lover. 
Like, you know you're a veggie lover when you love veggies that some veggie lovers hate. Did you follow that? <laughs> All right, who's down with the artichoke hearts? Oh, yeah, so good. Especially just soaked in butter. So good. Am I wrong? What about Brussels sprouts? Oh, man, love me some Brussels sprouts. All right, I'm going to start pushing you a little bit. Hominy. I'm down with the hominy. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really take you to the edge of veggie-loving lima beans. Does anybody like lima beans? Yeah, now, a little salt and a little butter never hurt anything. But they are so good. Now, even though I love vegetables, no one has ever mistaken me for a vegetarian. You know, we lived in Austin. One of our favorite places to go for barbecue is a place called Pokey Joe's Smokehouse. And they had the coolest T-shirt I'd ever seen. On this shirt, it said, Vegetarian is Indian for can't hunt. That's how we rolled in Texas. Loved that. We've got another pastor friend who says, if God didn't want us to eat animals, he wouldn't have made them out of steak. I think that's a philosophy to live by. So vegetarianism is not the point, you know. That's not the reason Daniel did what he did. We've kind of touched on reasons why he did what he did. It had to do with the dietary laws and so forth and the meat being offered to idols. So just to throw that out there. Nothing wrong with vegetarianism. This passage isn't teaching us that we must be vegetarians. So we've seen Daniel at the food court. We've seen him in a food fight. And finally, we want to talk about Daniel with food for thought. We're going to pick it up in verse 15. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And to these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, let's stop there for just a moment. Anybody here ever watch competitive eating on TV? It's weird because competitive eating is on the sports channels. And it's like, is that really a sport? Like, sometimes you turn on ESPN and, you know, they're playing a card game. And you're thinking, is that a sport? Is competitive eating a sport? I don't know, but that's usually where you'll see it. And uh, I mean, who knew, right? When I was a kid growing up, I never would have imagined that competitive eating would be a sport, uh, something that people would do vocationally. Like, do you realize you can make bank stuffing hot dogs down your throat? It's true. Joey Chestnut is perhaps one of the best known competitive eaters. And this guy is making about $200,000 a year doing just that, shoving hot dogs down his throat. Now, if when you were a teenager eating your parents out of house and home, if you had known that one day you could get paid to do that, would it have changed the trajectory of your life? Would you have chosen a different career path? College, who needs college? Take me to a buffet. I mean, I've got to build up my skills. It might have made a difference. But these guys, they, they won their competitive eating contest before you run to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. Do notice the fine print on this diet. In verse 15, it says that the result of following this diet, they were fatter in flesh. Now, I'm no marketing guru, but I'm pretty sure that's not the way to market your diet. I don't think that Atkins or South Beach or Weight Watchers are ever going to adopt as their catchphrase, fatter in flesh. It's precisely because I'm fatter in flesh that I'm, you know, almost always on a diet of one kind or another. But obviously, this has to do less with the gut and more with God. So, Let's just bring it down for a second. From a purely pragmatic standpoint, 
Life with God works in a way that life without him doesn't. Let me say that again. Life with God works in a way that life without him doesn't. What part of your life isn't working? In what way is that part of your life out of alignment with God? Some years ago, my sister was living in Austin and driving one of those mom vans, and she was having trouble with it. She described the trouble to me, asked me if I would go with her to the mechanic. And so we went, and we stood there and described the situation as they pulled her up on the computer. And uh, as soon as they pulled her up on the computer, they're like, oh, yeah, she needs an alignment. And we told her the last time she was here, a few months ago, we told her she needed an alignment. Okay, now, here's what has never happened in the history of driving. No one with a vehicle out of alignment has ever been driving down the road and hit a pothole. Boom! Hey, we're back in alignment. Like, what happened? I don't know. I mean, nobody's ever driven their car back into alignment. That just doesn't happen. I don't know if she thought that was going to happen. That doesn't happen. Well, listen, no one just lives their life back into alignment either. My sister, she had to be intentional. She had to take the car to a mechanic. She had to have it looked at. She had to have it serviced. And it's the same thing with you and with me. We have to be intentional. We need to read the Bible to see what it says about a part of our lives. We need to pray and ask God to show us about that part of our lives. We need to reach out to the wise people around us who care about us, who can help us to get counsel and encouragement in that part of our lives. Now, picking the text up in verse 18, it says, Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Now let me throw some words out for you. Pop quizzes. Midterms, finals, written tests, oral tests, fill-in-the-blank tests, multiple-choice tests, true-false tests. I mean, how many of you experience PTSD when you hear the words, now take out your pencils and your Scantron form, right? I mean, testing can be so stressful. There were some students who were brilliant, but who didn't test well. Testing can be a really awful experience. Imagine if you're these guys. I mean, three years have passed. And theirs is to be an oral exam. That's a lot of pressure. Not only that, but an oral exam before Nebuchadnezzar himself. I mean, how much scarier does it get? But you know what? They aced the test. It's so awesome. And notice in verse 21, it says that going forward, Daniel continued. Now, if we continued reading Daniel, let's say that I was going to be back next week and the week after, we were just going to keep working our way through the book of Daniel. Here's what we would discover. We would discover that it doesn't end in a food court. We would discover that in chapter 3, Daniel's friends would find themselves not in a food court, but in a fiery furnace. And we would discover that in chapter 6, Daniel would find himself not in a food court, but in a lion's den. You know, the tests that we face only get harder. They don't get easier. And it takes a lot of courage to follow God. 
Not everyone realizes that. I remember when pastoring in Austin, we were uh, relocating the church, and I was at Starbucks, and I knew many of the baristas there. One was asking me about the relocation, and another barista, uh, you know, said, what, what church? And I said, Calvary Austin, and, and she said, oh, I've, you know, I've attended there. I attended there for a while, and then as she was turning away and walking away, I heard her mumble under her breath, it was one of my I need help phases. And it really struck me that she was embarrassed that she'd attended church for a season. She was embarrassed that she'd been compelled by a sense of need to visit and briefly attend our church. You know, so many people think about faith that way and think about church that way. Sometimes people will even put us down for that reason. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, well, Christianity is just a crutch. And a lot of times we say it's not just a crutch. It's, it's the whole hospital, man. It's the triage. It's the ICU. It's the whole thing. But, you know, that, and that's absolutely true. But make no mistake about it. Following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. It includes fiery furnaces and lion's dens. If you're going to be a man of God, a woman of God, if you're, going to, if you're going to live a godly life, if you're going to follow and pursue God's plans for your life, it's not for the weak, it's for the strong. So the food for thought, well, a lot of times the tests, even the temptation, well, here's the thing. I mean, they're one and the same because in the same circumstance in which God is testing us to bring out our best, as Warren Wiersbe used to say, uh, Satan is tempting us to bring out our worst. But again, when we're facing these things, well, they often start smaller and then get bigger. Just like the food court was smaller as compared to the bigger test that was coming. So think about the small tests. Think about the small things. How many times in your life and in mine have we faced something and we thought, it's just a little thing. It's just a little tiny, small little thing. It's not a big thing. It's just a little thing. Well, you probably think you know where I'm going with this, and you might be wrong. So let me, let me throw it out, here, out there like this. I am not saying that everyone who compromises in a small way will go on to compromise in a big way. I'm not saying that. Here's what I am saying. That everyone who compromises in a big way compromised in a small way first which means there are no small things. It means that what we call small things matter. And so as you think about your life, as I think about mine, as, as we think about the truth of that and how we likely have all experienced that, I want you to imagine uh, these guys. You know, imagine them. Do you think that if, if Daniel had not experienced the test in the food court, he would have been ready for the test in the lion's den? Do you think that Daniel's friends, had they not experienced the test in the food court, would have been ready for the test in the fiery furnace? Are you in the food court right now? And are you disappointed that you're there? Are you frustrated that you're there? Are you crying out to God about being there? What if you knew, what if you knew that just down the road there is waiting for you a lion's den? That just down the road there was waiting for you a fiery furnace? What if you knew that there is no way you would ever be ready for that unless you were in the food court now? Could you come to see the food court as a mercy? 
Could you come to thank God for the food courts? Because you know what? It's right here and it's right now in your life that attitudes are being developed, that habits are being formed. The decisions that you're making now, rather than having nothing to do with the decisions that you'll make later, have everything to do with the decisions that you'll make later. Again, Daniel continued. Dan the man. He was going to outlast Nebuchadnezzar. He would outlast the Babylonian Empire. I mean, think of it. Three times he's called greatly beloved in the book of Daniel. In Ezra, he's twice mentioned along with Noah and Job. And then he's called Daniel the prophet by Jesus and as recorded in both Matthew and Mark. What an amazing thing. You know, Daniel experienced this unwanted relocation, this unwanted change and maybe you're in just such a place and maybe you're wondering where God is it's worth noticing if you'll just let your eyes fall on it that for Daniel all of this was a God thing notice in verse 2 the Lord gave notice in verse 9 God brought notice in verse 17 God gave and as you look around your food court on the table on the napkin dispenser on the utensils, on the countertops. You can see the fingerprints of God everywhere. And someday when you tell your story or when your story is told, these times, the food courts, the lion's dens, the fiery furnaces, they will be the hinges on which your story turns. Not those easy times that we all long for and enjoy when they come. May God make us all Daniels. I'm going to say a word of prayer. Miranda's going to come back up. We're going to do one last worship song. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for just the way that it speaks to us in our modern world and in our modern lives and with the changes that we may be experiencing or facing. Lord, may we have the courage to follow you with purposeful hearts like Daniel did and like his friends did. And as we do, Lord, I pray that, that you would be glorified. I pray that, that people would be drawn to you even as they see the way that you get us through all the things that this life throws at us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.